Neil, we are recording. Okay, good. Uh, welcome to the Fab Academy recitation. I'm delighted to have Amory Lovins joining us. He's the uh, co-founder, chief scientist, and chairman emeritus of Basalt. Um, I always find it inspiring to talk to him because where a lot of people see uh, global doom, he has amazing data on how technology has profound implications um, rather than um, politics or policy. Uh, somewhat joking, the last time he was visiting at MIT, we talked about a class, how not to use almost anything. And the idea of that is what prompted me to want to invite him to do one of these recitations. Um, Amory, you're joining a series of really interesting supplemental recitations in the Fab Academy. Oliver Eliasson has been covering why make almost anything, why we design. Um, George Church is covering how to grow almost anything. We've had a group on how to make something that makes almost anything, um, sort of supplementing these, these core skills. And so with that, I'm delighted to hand off to you and I'll make this full screen and go ahead, Amory. Oh, thank you. <coughs> and uh, thanks for the honor of describing how not to use almost anything. And for the opportunity, if you'll allow me to rearrange your metal furniture about design, like this, <laughs> where like this handsome Sinatran fellow I've been wandering into the wilderness for the past four decades. Today I'm going to give examples about saving energy, although similar whole system thinking uh, can apply to water, solid materials, and other sources. And I'm going to confine uh, this to, to energy savings uh, rather than the supply revolution. Savings are the world's biggest source of energy services now, bigger than oil. And in the United States, they've saved since 75 over 30 times as much cumulative energy as the double renewables have added. But improved technical efficiency in bringing more work out of our energy, that's about two-thirds of our savings so far, is just getting started. In 1975, U.S. government and industry all insisted that the energy needed to make a dollar of GDP could not go down. A year later, I heretically suggested that, that energy intensity could drop 72% in 50 years. So far, it's dropped 56% in 41 years. And yet, just the innovations already made by 2010 <coughs> can save a further threefold, twice what I originally thought, and a third the real cost. And seven years later, that's looking conservative. And that's partly because optimizing vehicles and buildings and factories as whole systems can often make very large energy savings cost less than small or no savings. Turn right. turn Amber, can you explain how, um, how do you measure um, those graphs? Yeah, as the axis says, it's uh, primary energy consumed per dollar of real GDP. So two-thirds of the savings are technical improvements, one-third is structural change. So is this just sort of dividing total energy and total GDP? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Of course, you can get much more sophisticated than that at the level of a sector or a process or a device. Got it. Okay. But, so what I'd like to emphasize here is how whole system design can often turn diminishing returns. The more you save, the more it costs into expanded returns, the more you save, the less it costs. Uh, <clears throat> such integrative design is how our Empire State Building retrofit saved 38% of its energy use with a three-year payback. Sorry, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you to unpack things as we go. When you say our Empire State Building retrofit, it, it, unpack that sentence. I co-led the design. Yeah. So I think many of the people aren't familiar with MRI, uh, the, the notion that you have a team that can go in to something well, like <clears throat> Rocky Mountain Institute is an independent, nonprofit, technically and market-oriented think-and-do tank that creates a clean, prosperous, and secure energy future. Uh, 
one of our areas of activity is buildings, and then we also <clears throat> work extensively in mobility, industry, electricity. Uh, our biggest work is in the U.S. and China. Uh, we have about 180 people. And we're so I'm stressing this because the Empire State Building might seem like a fact of nature, <laughs> an immovable thing, and the notion you can go in and do a retrofit on that scale is, is notable. <clears throat> Yeah, it's, um, it's a difficult, roughly 1929-1930 building, quite large, uh, and the owner wanted it to get better, and we thought he was the kind of guy that could make it happen, so I agreed to take it on. Now, here, energy intensity is measured in very specific physical units. It's kilowatt hours of energy used at the building for all purposes per square meter per year. Uh, that's in green, and you can see the 38% energy savings that paid back in three years, or it would have been less than one year, counting other benefits to the uh, tenant or the owner, better real estate value, better energy, better uh, human productivity, and so on. Now, that was considered pretty good until three years later, our cost-effective Denver retrofit saved 70%, making this half-century-old office more efficient than the best new U.S. office, which in turn is less than half as efficient as our own new office from which I'm speaking to you now, net positive, no mechanicals, passive, uh, <coughs> the most efficient commercial building in the climate zones in the U.S. Yeah, I have to keep holding you to unpack. Uh, net, explain net positive, no mechanical. There's a lot in those few words. Net positive means it produces more energy, in this case from rooftop solar, than it uses. And no mechanicals means no boilers, no furnaces, uh, no chillers. <clears throat> it uses passive design to keep you comfortable. Do you have um, fans? Mm -hmm. Are there fans? Let's see, there's four fans that run two air-to-air -air heat exchangers that recover 93% of the uh, heat in the outgoing stale air into the incoming fresh air. And uh, let's see, there, by code there are fans in the stove hood in the kitchen and in the bathrooms and in the elevator. So I guess and this is easy to do, right? Because this is easy to do because you're in a hot place, right? No, uh, we're in a cold place. Uh, it, I live 10 minutes from here, and we've seen minus 44 Celsius before. So this, this is in the Rocky Mountains um, and net positive. Just yeah, the laboring It's below freezing this morning. Uh, <clears throat> but the point I wanted to make here is that all the technologies used in these four buildings existed over a decade ago. What is mainly improved is not technology, but design, the way we choose and combine technologies. Uh, so to sketch how to do that magic, I'd like to start by getting us all into beginner's mind, opening ourselves to new ideas by stopping having old ideas, as my old mentor Edwin Land used to say, even better. Uh, <clears throat> and for decades, textbooks on creative thinking have posed this problem has find the solution that connects these nine dots with just four lines without lifting your pen from the paper. So you're supposed to try one, two, three, four, oops, five, that didn't work. How about one, two, that isn't gonna work. And what you're supposed to do is think outside the box, which is where that expression comes from. But one day a student startled her professor by saying she solved the problem with just three lines. Well, four lines was hard enough. How do you do it with just three? Dots are infinitely small. Oh, wait a minute. Actually, these are pretty fat dots, and you don't actually have to go through the middle of the dots. Oh, so if your paper is wide enough, you can do the Z for Zorro trick. And then seeing this, <coughs> seeing this, the students started to feel liberated. So they started solving this problem with just one line. And there are a lot of one-line solutions. I'll just get you started with some. If you're Japanese, you might like the origami solution, where you fold up the paper until the dots all fall together in line. Um, if you're a geographer, you might use the very long line. 
if you're a mechanical engineer or tool using critter, you can get out a tool called the scissors and cut out and impale the dots. Uh, <clears throat> if you're a statistician, you could crumple up the paper, and if you keep stabbing it over and over again with the pencil, eventually you will go through all nine dots at the same moment. The one I like best came from a nine-year-old girl who said, you didn't say it had to be a thin line, so I use a really thick line. So, <clears throat> as, as the late Paul McCready said, this tyranny of the word the, find the, the solution with four lines, puts us back in the box and keep us, keeps us from being more creative in finding elegantly frugal solutions. So, in that spirit of beginner's mind, never having built a house before, therefore not knowing what was impossible, a third of a century ago, I did the conceptual and energy design for our own owner-builder house, 2,200 meters up in the Rockies near Aspen, where, as I said, it used to go outdoors as low as minus 44 uh, Celsius. But my house does no combustion. That's so 20th century. It has no heating system. Uh, super insulation, ventilation, heat recovery, and super windows that insulate like 16 sheets of glass that look like two and cost less than three make it 95%, or sorry, 99% passive solar heated. But eliminating the heating system <coughs> more than paid up front for the efficiency that displaced the heating system. The textbooks say <coughs> when you're insulating a house, you should use only as much insulation as will repay its cost over the years from the saved heating energy. But that's wrong because it leaves out the capital cost of the heating equipment. So <clears throat> I about doubled the normal insulation until I no longer needed the furnace, pipe ducts, fans, wires, controls, fuel supply arrangements. And that saved 99% of the heating energy and about $1,100 of construction costs. So I got not diminishing but expanding returns to my investment in efficiency. The more I saved, the cheaper it got. Now, inside, <clears throat> the middle of the house looks like this in a February snowstorm. And so far, we've grown 67 passive solar banana crops. Uh, last spring, this 30 kilo twin crop harvested itself by pulling down the tree. Now, in 1984, this house was saving 99% of its space and water heating energy, 90% of the electricity, half the water. Uh, all with a 10-month payback. And today's technologies, which we've retrofitted, are even better. So the lights and appliances seem to use less electricity than their monitoring equipment. And this design approach works from Old Snowmass to Bangkok, but <clears throat> wherever you are, and that, that sort of spans the range of the Earth's climates, the, the key is integrative design that gives many benefits from each expenditure. So in the top of the big photograph, you can see this white arch holding up the middle of my house. That arch has 12 functions, but it has only one cost. <clears throat> Super windows have 10 main benefits, not just one. So in this cold climate office building in North Dakota, those costlier windows plus super insulation, super efficient lighting and daylighting more than paid for themselves up front by shrinking the heating and ventilating and air conditioning systems. So the building cost $36,000 less net to construct, and then it saves $75,000 a year worth of energy. Similarly, our Empire State Building retrofit started by remanufacturing its 6,514 windows on site into super windows that pass light but block heat. And that plus better lights and office equipment and stuff cut the maximum cooling load by a third. And then renovating smaller chillers instead of adding bigger ones saves $17 million of capital cost, paying for most of those improvements and cutting the payback to three years. In a big office building with even more glass, near Chicago, so it's hot and cold, integrating very efficient envelope and internal components to cut the heating and cooling loads shrinks or eliminates mechanical systems. And then their lower capital cost pays for the changes that displace them. 
So this cut the retrofit cost of a fourfold efficiency gain in this old building to slightly less than zero. It was about a minus five month payback. That's if you do it at the right time when you're reskinning this curtain wall facade anyway, because the window seals fail every 20 years. <coughs> Can we do the same trick with, say, cars? <coughs> well, yes. About seven eighths of the fuel energy in a typical older car never reaches the wheels. It's lost in the engine, idling, driveline, well, things like transmission and accessories. Now, of the remaining energy, the so-called tractive load that moves the car, more than half heats the air that you're pushing aside or heats the tires and road, and only the last 6% accelerates the car and then heats the brakes when you stop. But only a 20th of the mass you're accelerating is you. The rest is the heavy steel car. So only a 20th of that 6%, or about 0.3% of the fuel energy, ultimately moves the driver. Now, after 130 odd years of devoted engineering effort, this is not very gratifying. Automakers, though, have long focused on bringing losses out of the powertrain, the, all the orange stuff, because that's where the big losses are. Uh, but saving one unit of energy in the powertrain saves only one unit of fuel in the tank, whereas saving one unit of energy at the wheels leverages seven units saved in the tank by avoiding six units of losses getting that energy to the wheels. So the first thing we ought to do is reduce tractive load by making the car lighter and lower drag, and then improve the powertrain which gets smaller to get the same acceleration because F equals MA. And then we can save capital costs from shrinking the powertrain to help pay for the lightweight. So <clears throat> that's the same sort of prescription that we're doing in buildings. Uh, and in fact, it, it works. Uh, electric propulsion is going to take over the auto market a lot faster and cheaper if we first make autos two or three times more efficient by cutting their mass and drag two or threefold. So the carbon fiber electric cars I invented 25 years ago, we designed like this 17 years ago, and then the Toyota used our methods 10 years ago to design as a uh, threefold lighter plug-in hybrid. Those entered the market in Germany in 2013, and the one I drive, this carbon fiber electric car, is already profitable to BMW which says the carbon fiber that makes it so light is paid for by needing fewer batteries to move it. Uh, we developed an improved manufacturing process, by the way, sold it to a tier one that can now make a complex two by two meter carbon fiber part in one minute. And if you made all US autos in this way, you'd save about one and a half Saudis or half an OPEC worth of oil at a cost under 10 bucks a save barrel because the ultralighting is approximately free. It's paid for by radically simpler automaking with 80% less capital and by a two-thirds smaller powertrain. Now to reduce the mass of a car by half to two-thirds, you have to go several times around the design spiral or design cycle uh, to make the mass saving snowball. So you start off at the upper left, <coughs> making the car as light and slippery as you can think of. So it, it needs less power to move it, at least by a factor two. So you need smaller and can afford more advanced propulsion systems, and you need less chassis to hold them up, less brakes to stop them, and so on. And that leaves more packaging space and crush space because all this stuff gets smaller. But then you go around the spiral again, making components smaller as their structural load shrink. And often you can eliminate components altogether. For example, it quickly becomes cheap to use a good series hybrid. Well, then you can eliminate the transmission, clutch, flywheel, uh, drive shaft, U-joints, axles, differential, starter, alternator, has data-guide things that go away, and each time they trigger more weight savings, and then you go around the loop and save more weight, 
And at first, this ultralighting might all seem too costly because of exotic materials and fancy powertrain and better design. But after you go around the loop a number of times, recursively exploiting this mass decombounding, you need so little carbon fiber and so little electric propulsion, and the manufacturing gets so simplified that you that this pays for the carbon fiber and the ultralighting again becomes approximately free. <clears throat> so designing our own compromise four to six fold more efficient carbon fiber electric SUV 17 years ago required us to organize the designers differently. Uh, and not as a thousand engineers, but as a Amory, I got to interrupt. Something just went wrong. You just dropped out of the hangout. Um, everything was going great. We need something. We need to get you back in again. We just lost. Amy. Well. Okay. No, wait, hold on. You're, you're back in now. You just need to restart presentation mode. Um, okay, uh, dropped it in the hangout and came back. Do you have it now? Um, let's see, you're in the hangout, but you're not yet presenting. In Chrome, you have to move the mouse to the left of the screen where there's a green box that starts presentation mode again. Yeah, go to Chrome. Nope. Can I take a mouse for a second? How's that, Neil? Yep, uh, you're screen sharing, so now we just need to um, go into presentation mode, um, and we should get it. Okay. Okay. So, okay. I think you have to sorry, I'm going to interrupt. Uh, you have to press play, and then okay. Now we're at secret sauce. Go ahead. Okay. So <clears throat> normally cars are designed by upwards of a thousand engineers, and they toss their bid over the transom to the next specialist. But here we had seven engineers all around the same table and collectively responsible for the seemingly impossibly ambitious whole vehicle requirements we set. Each engineer was also responsible for one major vehicle system or function. But for those, we deliberately wrote no requirements because we didn't want him to make his problem into her problem. We wanted to force the whole team to design a highly integrated vehicle together. And two engineers <clears throat> were not comfortable having no requirements of their own, so we replaced them in the first week or two, and then it went fine. Toyota asked how we did it, we told them, and out came that three times lighter 1X. Um, and to achieve such results, you also have to design in the future, not in the past. In 1960, the Soviet Union shot down Francis Gary Powers' U-2 spy plane, and its designer, Kelly Johnson, did not say, I'm going to design a slightly better U-2. He said, I want to own the skies for decades, so we'll design a Blackbird, the SR-71 with the lower right. And he said, I, didn't know, I don't know how, but we'll figure out. And they did. It took about 13 months. Because Johnson understood that such an airplane was impossible within the conventional design context. He knew design is like a rubber band. If you try to stretch it too far from the conventional design space, you encounter more and more resistance and eventually it breaks. But if you jump to the new design space you really want to be in, you can stretch the rubber band back as far as needed for technologies that aren't ripe yet. And then as they mature, the rubber band relaxes to where you want to be. This is true of aircraft, of all vehicles, and in fact of all kinds of design. What about industry, <clears throat> which owns most of the world's motor power, and motors use 60% of the world's electricity? Well, half that motor torque runs pumps and fans. Now I'll have the same physics. And a typical industrial pumping loop was redesigned to use at least 86% less pumping energy, not by getting better pumps and motors and controls, but just by replacing long, thin, crooked pipes with fat, short, straight pipes. That also shrinks the pumping equipment and its capital costs. Just this design change it fully applied to the world's pipes and ducts <coughs> could uh, save about half the world's coal-fired electricity. And the paybacks we see in the field are typically less than a year in retrofits 
and less than zero in new builds. Why is this opportunity not yet in any engineering textbook or industry forecast or official study? Because it's not a technology. It's a design method, the Victorian one at that. And hardly anyone thinks of design as a scaling vector. Now, let me dig in a little more on this example. To cut the pumping power by an order of magnitude, we make two changes in the design process. First, we spec big pipes and small pumps, not small pipes and big pumps. The friction in a pipe goes down as nearly the fifth power of its diameter. So how fast should the pipe be to optimize friction? Well, the textbooks say to make the pipe just as fat as will repay its extra cost over the years from the saved pumping energy. From our earlier examples, you understand that this is wrong because it leaves out the capital cost of the pumping equipment, that is the pumps, motors, inverters, electricals all have to be big enough to overcome the friction and their size and therefore roughly their capital cost will go down as nearly the fifth power of pipe diameter, but the cost of the fatter pipe itself will go up as only about the second power of diameter. So clearly when you optimize the pipe as a component, you're pessimizing the system. Instead, optimizing the whole system at once gives you fat pipes, teensy little pumping equipment, and the total capital cost goes down. Now the second shift in design is even simpler and therefore more difficult, and that's to lay out the pipes first, then the equipment they connect. Normally we do the reverse. We put the tanks, boilers, and so on in some convenient, arbitrary, traditional place, and then invite in the pipe fitter to come connect point A to point B. But by then, <clears throat> A and B are far apart. There's other stuff in the middle. They're at the wrong height. They face the wrong way. And by the time the pipe snakes all the way across the space, all dressed in neat right angles like they teach us in trade school, uh, it has about three to six times the friction that it would have had with a straight shot. Uh, now, the pipe fitters think this is great because you pay them by the hour, they mark up the fittings, uh, and uh, they're not going to pay for your bigger uh, pumping equipment or your bigger electric bills forever. Uh, but of course, for you as owner, it's more intelligent to have fat, short, straight pipes than skinny, long, crooked pipes. Now, in this example, uh, the, the approach I've just described cut the pumping energy at least sevenfold, maybe twelvefold, with lower capital costs. And as a free bonus, it also saves 70 kilowatts of heat loss with a two-month payback because it's easier to insulate short straight pipes. <coughs> but then belatedly, I realized we'd screwed up by leaving out eight additional benefits that we could have captured each of which would have justified even bigger savings. The system is more compact, it weighs less, it's quieter, those all have a value. It has a wonderfully clean layout for easy maintenance access, so maintenance costs will be lower, but it won't need much maintenance anyway, because there's less stuff to go wrong. Uptime will improve. The pipes will last longer without so many elbows being eroded away by fluid turning the corner. And there's more flexibility for later debottlenecking if desired. So I later estimated that if we had properly counted and valued those extra benefits, we would have saved not 86 to 92 percent of the pumping energy, but probably nearer 98 percent, and the capital cost would have been even lower. And in fact, when adding some piping in my own house a few years ago, we saved about 97 percent of the friction and pumping power. Sorry, whatever you just did, you're still in the Hangout, but you just stopped presenting. Um, there's some instability. So again, redo, um, uh, go to the green box on the left of Chrome and re um, restart uh, presentation. and then just uh, go to play. Great, it's, it's probably like the Pipe Fitters Union or the Trilateral Commission trying to um, <coughs> present your message. 
Now, you see why I like to do purpose-built equipment. So, as we see this logic ignored in practically every building, every factory that I see in 65 odd countries, because they're all coming out of the same textbooks and lectures. Uh, for example, normally if you have a critical pump with an in-place spare pump, it'll be laid out like this. So the flow always goes through two right angle bends, meaning friction. So why not lay it out like this with, so the main flow has no bends and also fewer valves. The same logic applies with identical pumps in tandem. At California's Oakland Museum, our colleague Peter Rumsey retrofitted an efficient piping layout into the condenser uh, water pumping loop. You notice the Y joints, the fat, short, straight pipes, the sweet bend, the pipe running diagonally up through the air. Uh, and he cut the pumping energy by three quarters with a two or three month payback and eliminated 15 pumps that will never again waste energy and maintenance costs. Then he also <clears throat> repiped the museum's chilled water loop and added variable frequency drives. All that doubled the flow and saved 85% of the energy. And Peter's trick for helping pipe fitters understand how to minimize friction is he asked them to lay out the supply pipes as if they were drains. There's another part of their brain that knows that if drains have sharp bends, they'll clog. Uh, or another example, here is how most big buildings pipe cooling tower water back to the condenser. But if we lay it out instead the way Peter does, everything gets better. Less space, less weight, less noise, less friction, less energy, fewer parts, smaller pumps and motors. Less installation, labor, less maintenance, higher uptime. The only obstacle is force of habit. Now, such savings have enormous leverage from the coal burn to the power plant to the end use, there's so many successive losses compounding that only a tenth of the energy in the coal comes out the pipe as flow. But now turn those compounding losses around backwards from right to left, and every unit of flow or friction we save in the pipe saves 10 units of uh, coal and pollution and uh, global weirding and cost back at the power plant. And of course, as you go back upstream, the components get smaller and cheaper and the total capital cost goes down. So my team has applied these and many other kinds of integrated design to over $40 billion worth of industrial plants. Typically our retrofits uh, save around 30 to 60% of the energy and pay back in a few years. And the new plants, we end up with 40 to 90 odd percent of savings, nearly always lower capital costs. And neither of those integrated design methods nor even the basic concept of starting your savings downstream is in any engineering textbook we've seen. Very few practitioners use them, very few people teach them. So my colleagues and I are now hatching a plot for, to put it in politely, the nonviolent overthrow of bad engineering. Uh, and for now, we're calling this 10XE or factor 10 engineering. I hope you will help apply and refine and spread it. Um, and, you know, we learned all this stuff somewhere, the, the standard practice, and if we don't fix that pedagogy, we're condemning our descendants to perpetual retrofits of bad design. That's a lousy legacy and they have better things to do. So we're exploring with Stanford, Olin, Virginia University of Science and Technology, IIT Delhi and others, how to change integrative design from rare to commonplace, common as grass. Uh, we're also collaborating with a major maker of design software to coach users to the best integrative outcomes by default. If you wanted to opt out, you'd have to press the stupid button. Um, we're in, injecting integrative design vigorously hey, into shop. Hmm? Who is it you're working with on the design software? A very large uh, design software house. Uh, okay. We're injecting integrative design into China's new building standards and some iconic industrial projects. We're seeking an iconic American CEO who might want to do for 10XE the kind of promotion Jack Welch did for Six Sigma. We're exploring how to spread integrative design very widely among major
companies and individual installers, for example, through the training programs that uh, professions like pipe fitters and sheet metal workers have. I'm even writing a, a, a hilarious how-to graphic manual for Chinese factory engineers on how to untangle their pipe noodles. And I hope you'll suggest other ways to help launch an irresistible movement to make design integrative, super efficient, holistic, valuable, and fun. Now, I want to give you one last example showing how the same logic also applies to big data centers. Uh, Two-thirds of the fuel fed into the power plant is lost in the plant and the grid, and then half the metered electricity is lost in the cooling system and the uninterruptible power supplies that together are half the capital cost of the data center. That's before reaching the servers. Half the electricity reaching the servers doesn't get to the chips because it's lost in inefficient, usually very underloaded power supplies and in lots of fans to take heat that largely shouldn't be there off the motherboard into the room where we can do dumb things with it. Uh, <clears throat> then the next problem is severe underutilization of computing resources, partly through lack of virtualization. Now, the resulting energy flow, that little squib way at the lower right, is about to get so small it disappears, so let's magnify it. And the next problem is bloatware running many unnecessary threads and processes and making, making simple tasks very complicated because CPU cycles were cheaper than programmers' attention and someone else was paying for the energy. Downstream of that, you may even have inefficient business processes. So in all, a few hundred thousandths of the original fuel energy ends up delivering customer value. Where should we start fixing this? Downstream. Yeah. yeah. So first we write elegantly terse code optimally compiled with the goal that every compute cycle is a needed and wanted one. I'd assume this could save an order of magnitude on compute cycles, but actually recent tests suggest it's more like two orders of magnitude. That's how bad the software is. Then the shift to mobile devices, of course, now makes this important again because efficient code stretches battery life. Uh, now, after that, we can make the server efficiency at least four times better. That was like eight years ago. Now it's a lot better than that. Uh, and then the servers are going to need a lot less cooling and power supply, and there are much smarter ways to do those. We can even cut in half the utility losses using fuel cell tri-generation that's cheaper than the UPS it displaces. So multiply those savings from downstream to upstream, and you get at least two, possibly three orders of magnitude energy savings. This thinking came out of an actual installation in which, um, among other things, we designed out all the chillers. The client wouldn't accept most of our recommendations, so we were only able to triple efficiency at the same capital cost. But our partner, EDS, becoming at the time part of Hewlett Packard, said that had our recommendations they agreed with, which was practically all of them actually been adopted, we would have saved about 95% of the energy and half the capital costs. Well, so uh, Amory, uh, you just stopped out of the Hangout again, but that may be a good trigger. I have a couple questions. Was there more slides or can we go into Q&A? Uh, I have a few more. Uh, so why don't you start a question while I try to get this damn thing going again? Okay, oh, I'll wait a minute for you to get in so you can focus on that. I think it has something to do with overly complex software. <laughs> I think you just need to reshare from Chrome and then play. Yeah. So what was your question? Well, uh, um, why don't you finish running through what you have, and then I have some small technical questions, and then I want to open a bigger design question. Yeah, okay. So to review so far, well, we define our design intent. First thing to ask is why are we trying to do this thing at all? Uh, AutoSense has many forms of MUDA, that is waste, purposelessness, and futility, are not worth doing, so they're not worth doing well. 
you know, why are we pumping chilled water around a building that wouldn't need that flow if it were designed right? Why are we designing fan systems to deliver cold air when cool delivery should be radiative if you need it at all and airflow should be convective? Then we need to optimize demand before supply, downstream before upstream, application before equipment, people before hardware, passive before active, quality before quantity. In other words, the right steps in the right order. And I've given you examples from buildings, cars, mechanical engineering, IT, that all showed how to design from downstream to upstream, shrinking or eliminating the upstream parts to pay for highly efficient downstream energy use. But thinking that energy efficient design is about choosing and installing energy efficient equipment is like supposing that if you toss a bunch of good ingredients in a pot and heat it and stir, you'll get a tasty dish. Actually, efficient systems like good cooking result from whole system design. Even the finest ingredients won't make a tasty dish unless we use a good recipe and a skilled chef to combine the right ingredients in the right sequence and manner and proportions. Also, not only the big bits matter, saving energy is like eating an Atlantic lobster. There are big obvious chunks of meat in the tail and the front claws, but there's a substantial fraction tucked in tasty little morsels and crevices and requiring some skill and patience to extract. So the lobster went to a lot of trouble to grow it all and we ought to gratefully enjoy the whole thing. It's become fashionable to teach that design is the art of compromise and trade-off as if it were a way to negotiate with yourself so you can't get what you want. Jay Baldwin was once being taught this nonsense when he was staring out the window at a California classroom and he was watching a pelican catch a fish and he realized what the lecturer was saying couldn't possibly be right because nature doesn't compromise, nature optimizes. That pelican, he realized, is not a compromise between a seagull and a crow. It's the best possible pelican. After 90 million years, it's a really good pelican. So if you find yourself needing to compromise between desirable design goals, it usually means that you haven't yet found the right statement of the design problem. Keep at it, you'll get there, and when you do, you'll find, as the carpet designer David Oakey did, that you get every outcome you want lots more you didn't think to ask for, none you didn't want. The hard part isn't the answer, it's the question. Once you find the right design question, the answer is self-evident. Now, what can all this do for the world? Um, yeah, go ahead. So you stopped, you're out of the hangout again, and I think that's a good prompt. I want to get into Q&A. So why don't you wrap up the presentation part and let, um, just with final remarks, and then let's open for discussion. Oh, for heaven's sake. Well, at this point, I wouldn't worry about the slides. I think you've done a great job of telling the story. I want to use the remaining time to, to talk. Yeah, well, I'm about there. I'm setting it up again. Uh, oh, pain in the ass. So uh, we, of course, have applied this sort of thinking to the energy systems of the world. Seven years ago, we did this business and design book called Reinventing Fire, which rigorously showed how to triple U.S. energy efficiency and quintuple renewables by 2050. So we would need no oil or coal or nuclear energy, a third less gas. Uh, to save $5 trillion, grow the economy 2.6-fold, strengthen national security, make millions of good jobs, cut fossil carbon about 84%. And this would need, we found no new inventions and no acts of Congress, but with smart city and state policies that could be led by business for profit. That's exactly what's happening. This market-led implementation is on track so far. And then six months ago at the G20, um, China's Energy, China's National Development and Reform Commission published this roadmap for China's energy revolution, aided by Berkeley Lab and ourselves, detailing how China can save three and a half trillion dollars 
run a seven-fold bigger economy in 2050 than 2010 while using 1% more energy than today, seven times more productively, shift supply 55% off fossil fuels, emit 42% less carbon, get 13 times more GDP from each ton of fossil carbon, and this roadmap strongly informed the 13 five-year plan. So if you extrapolate those adopted Chinese findings and on-track U.S. findings to the other half of the world, it looks like the world could achieve about a two Celsius degree climate trajectory while providing energy services about $18 trillion cheaper than business as usual. And reinvesting part of that saving in natural systems carbon removal could get to about a one and a half degree trajectory, still with trillions of dollars left over, plus huge positive externalities, including a big boost to the UN's development goals. Obviously, making climate protection not costly but profitable should simplify the politics, and that starts with advanced energy efficiency through integrated design. So this has big consequences, and we just need some gifted designers whose engineering schools, skills I see have been praised in the proceedings of the National Academy to uh, give us a Vulcan mind bell like I got. And so we end where we began, only I hope encouraged to try super efficient integrative design yourself. Thank you for your good work and your kind attention. Now let's see if I said anything controversial. No, that's, that's, that, that's wonderful. And I hope for everybody it's a great introduction to why I find it so inspiring to listen to Emery. I have some technical questions, but I want to jump over them to the the. 10x and flag some assumptions in how you continue to, to think about what comes next. So you're talking to a network of a thousand fab labs with a doubling time of a year and a half. We backed into that, this sort of internet of bits and atoms by trying to introduce the technology through existing businesses and schools and found too many constraints. And so the Fab Lab network grew as this network of linked independent sites. And then this Fab Academy is this overlay where we kept failing to change schools. So we used the whole Fab Lab network to teach um, these, these integrated skills. And slowly schools are catching up to overlay with the network. We're not changing to fit them. They're, they're sort of changing to overlay with this. And so what would the, so your assumption is you mentioned Stanford and some elite institutions. This is really about building educational networks, sort of not the mainframe and not the bitnet, but, but the internet of education, a linked network of curated local sites. What are the next steps to realize 10X? And I'm, I'm asking you and everybody else sitting in. Um, a, a bad conclusion from your talk would be Amory is clever sort of the, the bigger challenge is how do we build this into a scalable program? What, what are your thoughts on that? And what is everybody else's thoughts on that? And how to do that in a network way, not sort of an elite centralized way? Well, I don't know enough about your network, but networks are awfully powerful. So I'd like to hear from some of the people on it, what they want to do with this information. Yeah, so I mean, just looking around, Blair, Kenzo, anybody thoughts? Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. So I have a question that relates to that, but uh, I don't know if it's connected to that. It's, uh, so sorry, um, who are you and where are you? Yeah, I'm Kenzo, I'm Brazil, and I'm a facilitator in the Fab Academy. So I was thinking about uh, how you talked about holistic systems, and I know you you like the book master particular phrase that uh, you make big systems that make things obsolete. But I was thinking about what can I do as a person, you know, and how can I uh, calculate it if it's worse, it's like buying a new car or doing something like 3D printer, not throwing things away or uh, thinking about the small things or not just the big systems, you know. So first, uh, Kenzo, you, you need a little more bandwidth. Uh, we got about half of that. 
But Amory, he's asking, what can I do as a person? It depends what you do, what what you have use for. I mean, you you can uh, pick up more of these tips. I I have on screen two basic short papers uh, and a and a website that I think you'd find a good introduction. There are many examples in the Reinventing Fire book, uh, <clears throat> which is easy to get in about a half dozen languages. Um, and uh, I think if you then apply those to whatever it is you design, you'll get good at it rather quickly. And then in your own cultural setting, think about what would need to happen for this to become the common design method. Uh, and you'll understand that much better than I could from the outside, even if I were where you are. Uh, I have some hope that the how-to manual that I'm piloting on untangling pipe noodles initially for uh, localization in China and India uh, may start a, a rather viral spread and then I want to follow with others on drive systems and mechanical design and so on. But I think this approach has much wider application including for example software engineering uh, and it, therefore I want to get the ideas as widely dispersed and infectious as possible in all the design disciplines. So, um Blair, can you explain where you are and what you do there? I think I think that's a, sort of a microcosm of this conversation about next steps. Okay. Yeah, Blair Evans. I'm in uh, Detroit, Michigan, and uh, you know one of the things that we've been doing is to to marry the fab lab and digital fabrication with permaculture programs. And a lot of the point of the permaculture programs was to embed an idea of total system design, the stacking function and the opportunity to understand some of the ethical framework that's kind of embedded um, in this also. It's, uh, we're trying to apply it in the context of actually doing community development, kind of from the ground up um, in the city of Detroit and in a couple other locations. And one of the interesting pieces of that process is if we're starting from with folks who are unfamiliar with both, it's kind of a natural combination. But if you're starting with someone who's who's familiar with engineering, it's a kind of shocking disconnect to go over to permaculture just to try to import ideas back. So I was frantically kind of looking up your material online as you were talking. You know, I had kind of read the book and was familiar with it overall, but the specific description is very accessible to people who are used to thinking in design engineering terms to bring in some of those same concepts along the way. So, you know, we're partnering with one of local design schools to think about the spiral of dialogue to be able to kind of engage in responsive design with uh, the needs of people in the community, um, the folks in the fab lab to try to generate a successive series of projects that people can get engaged in to build capacity, but also to build technical skills while doing things that are relevant in the community. But to start from the perspective of not replicating nonsensical things from the past, but really thinking very organically about one, sociologically, kind of what should the community be like, but also from the perspective of the built infrastructure and the organization of the natural environment, how can these things work together in an ecosystem so that you do have the capacity for everything to feed off of each other and you're not over-designing things that are trying to overpower each other. So I love the presentation overall. I look forward to looking at ways that we can integrate um, this formation of that into some of the other community college programs that we're working with um, here in some of the formal educational structures. So we haven't gotten a tremendous traction in integrating the permaculture perspective, but it's the same kind of idea formulated in ways that's much more approachable. So and you make it easier when the students are younger. And of course, I, I also love your biological tie-in. I assume you're all familiar with Janine Mendes' book, Biomimicry. If not, I strongly recommend it. Um, let me challenge Kenzo and Blair and Amory again. Um, Kenzo and Blair took the Fab Academy 
sort of, you know, mastered digital fabrication with his evolving set of best practice. Now they're instructors mentoring, but crucially, it's sort of this linked tree. Students have these mentors locally. We spend a lot of time meeting globally. And so there's this real sense of, of fan out. And so what I see lurking in this conversation is the same thing for what you just covered. Sort of, you know how to do this. You have a core team. It'd be really interesting to build a sort of distributed tree of collaborating mentors. And I don't know if that's a separate network or an overlay on this network, but you know, Larry and Kenzo are both sort of case studies of that kind of mentoring fan out that's working for digital fabrication. And again, I'd love to take it sort of to this next step of design in the way you're presenting it. Seems like a perfect overlay for this network to me. Yeah, but how do we do it? What's the, is this a class? Is it a project? Um, yeah, let, let me give you so let me give you a menu of options. The machines that make machines is an informal collaboration. Just people all over the network doing that. Um, Self-sufficient cities, Fab City, is a very organized program coordinating work with cities around the world. Fab Academy or How to Grow our courses, training the trainers taught in a curated way, what, what's the best format to really, in a disciplined way, push the fan out? Hmm. Well, I definitely think one is in the structure of a course, but I think the other is in the structure of like an expanded set of recitations and just kind of embedding the design thinking in the process of the work that's done, for example, in the Fab Academy. I mean, Go, go, sorry, go back to my initial joke to Amory. I, I just floated a, a follow-up course from the Fab Academy, how to not use almost anything. You know, it, it, is that you, you could imagine a whole cycle of food energy sort of taking each, each resource we use and tackling how to unpack them, building on all these skills. I mean, it, it, would that make sense? Hmm. So let me make this really concrete. Um, in, in how to make um, one week, I teach large format machining, and then I give an assignment to make something big. And then the students go off and they spend a week mentored by Blair and Kenzo and all of the other instructors making learning large format machining and making big things. Each week they master a skill, and then through this they build up to projects that integrate them. And then when they're done, it trains this cohort with evolving best practices. Yeah. And so one exercise could be an overlay where we do a program like that, but you know, one unit is on untangling plum plumbing and one is on insulation and one is on measurement. And to a surprising extent, I've found this cycle is critical because it, it both trains the trainers and propagates best practices with a kind of, you know, it, it, it's version of one of the virtuous cycles you described. That's interesting because, of course, we do have examples of integrative design for many disciplines and applications. We're looking for better examples all the time. Uh, we also have a loose network of practitioners who think and practice this way, uh, but they're, they're not organized in any way. We just occasionally do a project together or talk on the phone. There's nothing like you have here. So here, let me show let me do a little show and tell. Go, go to Chrome and I want you to open a web page. Go and what? Go, go to vnc.fabacademy.org. VNC? Yeah, uh, virtual network computer, vnc.fabacademy.org. Yeah. Okay, so you should see yourself? Yeah. Okay, so to, to make this really concrete, the Fab Academy that you're joining in right now has, each of these is a student group with peers and mentors locally learning, in this case, digital fabrication skills. And then um, they do um, build up to projects. And so from last year's cycle, 
these are the final projects realized by all of the students in all these sites around the world with this fan out. That's digital fabrication. Then um, George Church is doing a class where he coordinates, but he has this global team of bio stars with bio labs around the world. And then what they do is how to grow almost anything, which is use, sort of using fab labs to make um, bio, lab, bio labs and then teaching biotechnology. And again, to belabor, um, MIT or Stanford are mainframes. You go there and get processed. Online classes are like BitNet. These are educational networks. Each of these is a group of peers and mentors. And so what I'm speculating about is something like how to grow, but it would be, you know, if you take the how to grow, let me go back to here, um, the how to make class that you're sitting in on, these are the skills we're teaching. And so in the large format machining um, week, we covered large format machining, and then you go off and make something big. It would be something like this, but sort of unpacking each of the things you covered into a hands-on project with connected work groups with this combination of sharing video and audio globally while working in work groups locally. Wow. I'm belaboring this because I'm struck, struck in your presentation both about the impact, but the one thing sort of missing in your presentation is fan out of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a very striking uh, concept of how to spread the insights faster and get more brains focused on improving them and spreading them. So I need to share this with my colleagues and uh, figure out what we should do about it. So um, I can send you follow-up links, but just, you know, we're, we're almost out of time. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm sure this is a question, but I, I'm sure I speak for Blair and Kenzo in saying, and everybody else listening, that they would be interested in seeing this happen. Yes? 100% supportive. Yes. Hmm. Of investing time and energy to help support it. Yeah. Oh, in fact, sorry, let's go even further. So the how to make class is anomalous, and I, I do sort of everything. George's class, there's a whole team. He coordinates, there's a team of faculty, and then, then there's a coordinator helping run it. And so, I think Blair just volunteered that role, roughly. Uh, yes, Blair? Yes. Okay. And so the idea would be, again, nothing's binding, but we would develop how to not use almost anything as something, a really disciplined thing. Students in work groups in these labs connect locally to train mentors and propagate best practices with a discipline cycle in this tree of fan out as an overlay over this whole global network. Um, here, the, um, let me show you one last thing if you're still looking at the site. Um, this, what we're talking about doesn't have to be in fab labs, but the whole point of the fab lab network is um, doubling time is a year and a half. Right now, this is the coverage. Uh, oh, sorry, this isn't gonna work in Chrome. There's a Chrome bug. But we have this global map of sites all set up with instructors and video and mechanic and tools and machines that create this sort of network work groups. I'd say if you, let's see, does that sound interesting and worth exploring, Amory? Yes. I have a I have a small detail to add from Norway. This is Jens Levik yes, so, from Halifax, the Norway. Jens, Jens, can you quickly explain who you are and your backstory? Just and make we'll make this the last question comment. Go ahead. Yeah. So my name is Jens Levik, and I got drawn into the FabLab network because I, I did my own research project, a personal FabLab world tour for two years, uh, finding 
uh, business models for creativity based on open knowledge sharing and finding out how I can help people make their own stuff instead of making it for people. And I fell in love with Fab Labs so much, I started one here in my hometown, which uh, we've been setting up for the last five years. And, and sorry, we are you, one before of the you go on, is, are, are you standing near your machine? Can you pan your camera to show the machines you make? Uh, no, unfortunately, there's no, I'm in the old office of a temporary okay. location. So, so Jens is doing beautiful work on how Fab Labs make Fab Labs, so that, that they're huh. technically self-reproducing. And uh, Jens, where are you? I'm in uh, Oslo, Norway. Sorry? Oslo, Norway, North Europe. Hey. Well, that's rather so, cute. <laughs> that's other. <laughs> Yes, I could indeed talk. Nice of us, there, Nice. A little bit of Norwegian there for you guys. So, okay. what you see here is a, a, a scale model of a hundred-year-old factory building that our association, the Fab, we made the association that is the Fab Lab, and this association is now the legal owner of that hundred-year-old factory building, and it's about five thousand square. Uh, feet and we're converting it into a thousand square feet and renovating it right at this moment. This is going to be the permanent home of our fab lab. So the knowledge you've been sharing in your lecture is very relevant to us. I'm going to share it with the rest of the team and, and our architects and, and we might come back to you with, with some questions if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. And Looks like a good candidate for a passive retrofit. Yeah. To, yes. to, to belabor, the reason I like this conversation so much is if we really launch this how to not use almost anything, it provides this great discipline for every week, you and Kenzo and Blair and Jens, and it provides this work group where you meet, you curate this content, and then you spread it and propagate it. Um, it would be a real pleasure. So let, let's wrap up by... I'll send, I'll do an intro to some of the people who spoke and I'll send you a couple follow-up links and make a tentative plan to try to launch this as an ongoing program to do fan out. And sorry, let, let me stress, um, the fan out is like your plumbing symmetrical. As much knowledge comes in from the tree as goes out to the tree is what really powers it. Mm -hmm. That's what's most interesting. It's mycelium uh, flow should be both ways. Yeah. Okay, that was lovely. We're a little bit over time, so thank you and hope to really continue this discussion. Indeed. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.